Welcome to Conflict Managed. I'm your host, Mary Brown. Today on Conflict Managed, Dr. Eric Norberg shares his 10-year leadership journey and what he has learned along the way. He offers strategies for working with people we find difficult and the importance of really embracing diversity, equity, and inclusion. Eric Norberg is Dean of the Paul Meek Library at the University of Tennessee at Martin. He holds an MSLS degree from Wayne State University and earned his PhD at Michigan Technological University. He was employed as a professional archivist at Indiana University of South Bend, Michigan Tech, and is former director of the Walter Brother Library at Wayne State. Norberg was Dean of Libraries at Indiana University of Pennsylvania before beginning his current role in February 2021. Norberg was part of the 2022 Cohort for Leadership Weekly County and is a member of the Weekly County Historical and Genealogical Society and the Friends of the Martin Public Library. He and his wife, Jane Norberg, live with their two cats in Martin, Tennessee. Good morning, Eric, and welcome to Conflict Managed. Hey, thanks for having me, Mary. So glad that you're here with us today in the beginning of January. I'm a longtime listener, first-time caller. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, let's begin, as we like to do, and hear about your work history from the first job you had up to present. Uh, well, you know, I grew up in metropolitan Detroit, and uh, it's kind of funny. If my dad was here, he would say, I know the first job you had, Eric. You worked at that golf range. And uh, Chet J. Wars Gratiot Golf Center uh, in, uh, in uh, metropolitan Detroit, we picked up golf balls from the field, uh, and sometimes people hit the golf balls at us <laughs> while we were out there. Uh, but probably the great lesson out of that job was that once a week we were on a rotation, we had to clean the bathrooms. And my dad will always say, that's the job where you figured out that getting a college degree and getting a job where you don't have to clean bathrooms is really a better part of life. And so I, I can reflect on it that way. I, I worked in I worked in retail, a little bit drugstores when I was in high school, you know, stock boy ran the cash register, that kind of stuff. And so I kind of got a sense of the rhythm of going to work. And I, I like work. I don't have a problem with work. And I think you, you know, have over time build work families. Um, I had a job my brother-in-law got me uh, working in the parts cage at a small factory in the Detroit area when I was in grad school. And I graduated into the office as a purchasing agent. Um, that was probably the first of many bad boss scenarios I had. I had a purchasing director in that office. There were only three of us, including her. And one of us was always in the doghouse. And one was always golden boy. And it, it switched uh, from month to month. And I always remember I, I took, was taking classes in the evenings, but I had one class that I took in an afternoon. And I was in the doghouse that week. And I came back the next morning and my desk had been completely cleared off. Everything had been put into the drawers, just kind of dumped into the drawers and the top of the desk had been cleaned. And I said, gosh, what happened here? And the purchasing manager said, you know, I just got tired of looking at how messy your desk was and it was dirty. So I cleaned it and I thought, okay, thank you so much. I won't mention her name, but I still think about her to this day. Uh, but then uh, I got a uh, uh, got into library and archives work uh, uh, through a degree program at Wayne State in Detroit and uh, have worked in a number of different settings. I worked as an intern with the United Auto Workers in their research library, uh, went down to South Bend where I worked in the Indiana University system at their regional campus. And then I was many years up at Michigan Tech in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, started there as their archivist 
And I was there for 18 years. And when you're there long enough, then you, you kind of get other duties as assigned. So I did some work as head of some other departments and interim library director there for a while. And then I left higher ed altogether for a couple of years, uh, became the executive director of a nonprofit, uh, the Michigan uh, Humanities Council, uh, and then kind of got drawn back into archival work. I was the director of the Ruther Archives at Wayne State University in Detroit. And then I finished my PhD at that time and uh, became an assistant dean uh, within that system uh, and um, went on then to a short stint in Pennsylvania as dean of libraries at Indiana University of Pennsylvania. And then I've been here at UT Martin as the dean of the Paul Meek Library since uh, February of 2021. So I'm coming up on my second anniversary uh, here at uh, University of Tennessee. And also my second anniversary in Martin and my second anniversary living in the South. Uh, so it's been an interesting, interesting uh, journey. And the last 10 years have been really kind of a leadership journey for me. And uh, I've had the support of, of my wife and others in that work. So it's been kind of interesting, kind of pivoting from being someone who actually does things. You know, you're the person that has a job that's defined. Uh, to actually help the public with research or instruct people to being a manager of a group of people and then maybe to being a leader of a larger enterprise. And so um, I try to be self-reflective about those things and, and read as much as I can, uh, but it, it is challenging work. And so I, I appreciate the work that you're doing because I think as, as leaders and managers, we, we need to spend as much time as we can being thoughtful about how to be most effective in our, in our work. So what changed for you for to go into management and leadership from being maybe boots on the ground? There's a tendency, I think, in most people's part to want to just do their job. And that's not a bad thing. I mean, you know, like if you have a five point uh, evaluation scale that many uh, employers use, you know, three is fully meeting expectations and fully meeting expectations of your job is a good thing. Um, I think sometimes there's this challenge in trying to figure out, okay, is there more that any of us could do individually? And when you become that manager and leader, it's sometimes it's dealing with the people that are in the twos or the ones that aren't meeting expectations at all. But it's also how do you how do we encourage the organization to to grow and maybe to 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 move the ball up the field a little bit and maybe be in more of that four range or sometimes even that five range. And so I think part of it's motivating people, part of it's, you know, encouraging and supporting people to feel motivated. Um, but it's also, I mean, you know, it's like the old gardener metaphor, you know, you got to feed the plants that are thriving, but you always have to kind of watch out uh, for the weeds that might be crowding out success. So, you know, I mean, we talk about these things, but then when you actually are on the ground doing them, it, it gets a little trickier, so. <laughs> Absolutely. As you know, there's a lot of theory in this field about leadership, management, uh, how to get people engaged, so on and so forth. And that's, I, I think that's very useful to have these, these tools, these rubrics. But as you said, it's very different when you're in an office and you are dealing with people and you see them day in and day out uh, to work with their challenges and also to work for those people who maybe seem bored, who, who, who need more. Yeah, it's interesting. We're talking just after the holidays and and I usually end up seeing some version of the Scrooge story. And uh, my dad and I usually have a conversation. He's a retiree out of corporate world. 
And uh, it's always about Fezziwig and Scrooge. And if you remember, Fezziwig was Scrooge's boss in the, in the beginning of the story. And Fezziwig's this caring, loving boss who throws parties and dances and pays people a living wage. And I think the quote's something like, you know, the job of my job is to make sure that these people can have a, a full life, can have families, can live happy. And that's kind of opposite to Scrooge. And I think my dad's always said, you know, when you're in the corporate world, you got to kind of watch that. I, I always remember one of my one of the people I reported to um, usually a question that it's good to ask if you're if you're moving into management or leadership is, OK, what what's my job? It's my job to represent my work group to you and try to get as much as I can of support for my group or is my job to be responsible for the larger institution you know, and make sure that it thrives. And it sounds like the answer should be yes and yes, but often those things come at odds to each other. And in that case, it was, you know, pretty significant economic collapse of an institution I was working for. And, you know, we had to make decisions on, you know, laying off about 40% of our library staff, Mm -hmm. you know, and you really can't support people in the way that they're going to have a happy Fezziwig life, you know, when you're cutting the workforce by that much. But, you know, if that's the thing that allows the institution to survive or thrive, you know, that puts you in that, in that position. And I don't think there's ever a good answer to that question. Uh, but I think it's one that most, most managers and most leaders have to figure out. And you know, I think the, the emphasis that you and others are having is how do we find that kind of compassionate aspect of this and not just always be Scrooge about the numbers and making the most money. Not that, not that higher education is about making money, but you know what I mean? Yeah. You know, I think that's really interesting because so much of uh, when we think about conflict or issues, we think about I'm having an issue with this person about this process or about their behavior or performance. And yet, as you rightly point out, that a lot of times leaders in organizations are pitted against each other in a fight for resources and a fight for whatever it might be, which should give us all pause to think we need to continually look at the systems. In what way are the systems contributing to the particular personnel problem that we're having? In what way can we, as the whole organization, be for each other? And then within individual teams, create that psychological safety so that we could do good work. But if I'm trying to do good work here, but that means that we want this other part to not perform as well so that we get more resources, more recognition, more whatever it is. Um, That's a, that's a system problem. Yeah. And I have to say right now where I'm working, my immediate supervisor and his uh, team above him, I, I think it's a pretty good organization. And I don't think that this particular leadership group pits people against each other in that way. Uh, Other places I've worked, that's been very true. And I think one of the one of the pieces that can that can play into that and support it is the lack of transparency and people who hoard information. And so I don't know, I, I think it's one of those things where if, if you're trying to be mindful of these uh, of these approaches, you know, I when I was thinking about my work history, I put little stars next to the bad bosses I had. And I think we learn from those experiences that, you know, I don't want to be like that jerk. And yet you're thrown into positions where sometimes you have to be that jerk, you know, and I think trying to fight against that is always something that a a good leader should do. I wouldn't claim I'm a good leader, but at least I think trying to be trying to be present about that. And and again, I think I think transparency is a challenge, uh, particularly when it comes to money. 
Uh, and I think you've also hit the nail on the head that personality is a real tough one because mm -hmm. we all bring personality to the workplace. Yeah. And some people, I've had some very emotional leaders, both men and women, uh, who play emotional games uh, as part of their their management style. And it's just really challenging uh, to work in those kinds of environments. So I try to avoid those things. Do I always succeed? I don't, I don't know. You'd have to ask the people that I work with. <laughs> <laughs> well, I like to say, you know, we are always trying to be better than we were today, right? We, there's always chances and reflection. I, I think a lot of times like system problems happen through lack of reflection. I don't, many times it's not intentional. I'm going to intentionally have this dog pit and have people fight it out. It's just not being thoughtful and really seeing the ramifications of what we've set up um, and seeing how, how it really impacts individuals. But I think the wonderful thing about really thinking about conflict resolution is that it helps us get out of the personality game. Right. Mm -hmm. So when we have a leader that is playing mind games or has a low emotional intelligence, we can, instead of being frustrated with a personality, which can be very frustrating, that is not something that we have the power to change and nor should we be in the changing personality business, but we can look at behaviors, whether it's the boss that is making it challenging and the behaviors that he or she is exhibiting or um, someone that uh, reports to you. And so I think when we start looking at behaviors that are problematic for us being on mission or me doing my job, then we can start looking at things that um, are possibly fixable or changeable. Yeah, I, I, you know, it's there's there's issues that arise one to one between an individual and their supervisor, but then there's the whole culture of the workplace that you're in, mm -hmm. and you know, I think I agree entirely. I actually wrote it down. You can't change people, mm -hmm. and I think you can you can encourage people to modify their actions, but I don't think you can change the core of people very easily, and you know you can have an impact on the people you hire by trying to make good hiring decisions, but any job you go into, you also inherit the people that have been there. That's and, right. you know, it was another note that I had as I looked through my work history, particularly this leadership journey in the last 10 years, is that I came into several organizations that had had, uh, uh, let's just at least say discontinuous leadership or leadership challenges or even some failed leaders. And so to come into an environment where, you know, people are already kind of beaten up by a bad manager or a, a system that has failed them. You know, there's a whole other, other aspect of building trust with people. Yeah. And a couple of those jobs, I didn't stay in very long. And mm -hmm. so, you know, then you carry kind of that guilt. You tried to build trust with people, try to get them back in the game, and then you just couldn't manage to stay in that position. And so you ran as well. And I, you know, it's, it's a very complicated emotional environment uh, when you get into work groups. And, and so I, I do think that that's probably the largest challenge that any, any thoughtful leader has as they come into any position. So, yeah, you know, I think you are so right. And yet there's been this uh, adage forever and ever that you uh, check your emotions or whatever's going on with you at the door and you come into work, which that way of thinking is putting your head in the sand. No, we are whole persons. We bring our work baggage with us, our expectations, our personalities, whatever's going on at home or uh, in our in our lives, and we show up at work. And then we have a mixed bag of how healthy people are physically, mentally, what's going on with their lives, and we're asked to do work. And, and as the leader or the manager, how do we help people be excellent, thrive, and have a, a work culture 
that helps us helps us all, all right, the organization and the individuals. We're also asking people to try to be open and honest about emotions, which is kind of a, it's a difficult thing to do even in your private life with someone you love. Now you're going to ask people to do it in a group setting, you know, uh, it, it, that c- it can be very challenging. Right. And uh, I think, again, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't try. Uh, it just means that we have, you know, we have these additional pieces that we have, we have to work with as we go. Yeah. And it, it's not going to happen unless people feel safe. Unless, and as you said, when, once trust is broken, it's very hard to regain. And it's unreasonable, I think, to ask people to put themselves out there if trust has been broken and people have demonstrated that they're not trustworthy or it's not a safe environment. People don't really want to know what's going on. Yeah. One of my employers, I was just having a look here and trying to remember, uh, we had done uh, Clifton Strengths uh, analysis. And, you know, people do a lot of these things in group settings. You know, whether it's uh, uh, some of the classic types of personality uh, pieces. Uh, but it, the reason I mentioned that, it was, it was interesting when you have a group of even seven or eight of us who were department leaders uh, to kind of sit in a room together and talk about uh, where you fit on different scales or what are the strengths that you bring to the table. I do like Clifton Strengths, it's a, it's a good program. Uh, but I think it's also an opportunity to kind of sit back and listen and understand that people have different approaches. They have different mental uh, uh, processing uh, speeds. Uh, one of the pieces in, in Clifton Strengths talks about how, you know, some people and a person that I worked very closely with, they can't respond to your question if it's heady right at the moment. They're the kind of person that wants to sleep on it overnight and come back with a thoughtful response. And yet other people I work with, it's like, no, we've got to make a decision now. And when you have that conflict between those two personality types and their ability to process something that might be a more complex issue, um, you're always going to run into, into, into challenge in coming up with an answer. Uh, but even taking those tools and having open group discussion can be very challenging mm-hmm. uh, because people don't. They're not used to talking about their feelings in a public setting. Well, some of them are. They're always only too happy to talk about what's bothering them, but other people, that's really not their game. So I don't know, it's, it's, it's interesting. And the work that you do, I think, helps, to, helps people to kind of get into that and, and talk about it a bit more. Yeah, and I, and I would say that um, many people who, wanna, who are open about talking about their feelings many times, not always, but it's about the past. It's about rehashing the past and how they were harmed or hurt instead of forward looking. And those sorts of tools that you talk about, I think can be wonderful to help us look to the future. When this happens, when these situations arise, whatever they may be, these are my strengths. Those are your strengths. How can we work together um, Mm -hmm. knowing that these are going to be around the corner? Well, I think in higher education now, there's there's a, a great emphasis on uh, diversity issues. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I think for, for maybe some of your listeners who don't, they're not into that work right now, it's just so important in higher education. There's a, a significant demographic shift that's going to occur in this country. Fewer and fewer people had children in the last 20 years. And as a result, the impact on a lot of universities, like the one that I work at, is that we're going to need to continue to recruit and support students who aren't traditionally having gone to college, which often means students from different uh, socioeconomic backgrounds, students of color, students from uh, different settings. And, and so I, 
it's not just a, a hack or a game. We need to be able to support people that aren't used to being in a collegiate environment, maybe don't feel that they belong. And so even for us in our setting, having our faculty and staff get some basic understanding and training about diversity issues uh, is so important for us right now. And part of that, of course, is being self-reflective on your own, maybe hidden biases or things that you bring into the workplace that you don't even think about. And I'm not just talking necessarily about people of color, but uh, ageism, uh, uh, your thoughts on people who may have disabilities, uh, your thoughts on, I mean, we see a lot of students coming in now who are somewhere on the spectrum. And so how do you interact with with a student who maybe has a different kind of cognitive approach to the way that they talk or they think or that they interact with others. And uh, it's just been fascinating. We've been doing a lot of work with our campus uh, training facilities of, and, and people. And I think it's just very interesting for me, not only to be self-reflective myself, but to see a, a group of people kind of talk about, okay, what's a microaggression? You know, what's a, what's an implicit bias? And gosh, I, I guess I never really thought that you know, patting the stomach of my pregnant coworker is kind of offensive to her, you know? <laughs> so <laughs> there's so much work that we, that we, that we can do. And I think, uh, again, I've got a good work group people now, both the people I report to and the people I work with. And I think people are more open to that. I don't know when you get outside of the bubble of higher education, uh, you know, how do you work those kinds of things in, in settings where maybe your customer base isn't going to be as important as it could be in higher ed? Well, as you mentioned, higher ed is typically not-for-profit, but when you think about um, profits uh, for profit businesses, I know when we talk about problems or really opportunities, I really believe that when it comes to diversity, because insofar as you embrace your workforce and all of its many facets, you're going to be a better organization. Because if the people at the top who are typically a certain kind of demographic or um, have climbed the socioeconomic ladder, but maybe your demographic is going to Walmart or someplace else. Um, and you're not taking advantage of the diversity within your organization. You aren't going to be as good at putting your products out there, marketing your products, let alone the basic human factor, how we ought to treat everybody with dignity mm -hmm. and respect. And when we you know, move past diversity and inclusion to belonging, right? More than just having the people there, but really including them in the kind of way where they feel seen and heard and a part of the organization, they flourish. That means we flourish, the organization, the community flourishes. It is this symbiotic relationship. But when people are damaged in the workplace, when they do feel aggressed, when they don't feel like their voice is heard or they're just a, a symbol or something like that, that causes a lot of damage to them personally and also to the organization. Yeah, I think the the literature on belonging is so fascinating to read. And uh, we were doing uh, a lot of this when I was at Wayne State University in Detroit, uh, because there's serious issues there with uh, retention, progression, and, and completion for African Americans uh, in an urban environment like Detroit. And, and the university was making good strides in that. And I remember many of our retention summits having speakers who are active in belonging, who talk about how you know, maybe those of us that have come from a background of privilege of whatever level, we don't feel uncomfortable in an academic setting on a campus. And yet people that haven't come through that system, they're very discomforted by being on a campus. I mean, we deal with this in a library like mine where 
students come in the building and they don't, you know, they're, they're, they don't feel like they know where to go or what to do or what they're allowed to do. And I think we forget that some people bring that sense of disconnection with them when they step on the campus, when they step in a building. And as the, the, the people who study in this area say, it's the smallest thing that you might say or do that just confirms their sense that they don't belong there. And uh, they talk a lot. One of the speakers talked about, you know, elevator conversations, you know, how to have a conversation with someone just while you're riding out. Of course, in Martin, we've got what, three stories, in most buildings at most, but still the ability to have a short conversation with someone, not make the mistake of triggering something that, that makes them feel they don't belong, but quite the opposite. How do you, how do you encourage and support them to understand that, you know, a college life is hard at times, but it's not, you know, it's not a life or death decision here. And how's, how's your week going? I mean, we just started our semester here. It's fun to talk to students and ask them what classes they have and what's going on at the end of the semester and, and just kind of give them a sense that someone's listening to them. I'm fascinated to talk to students about what they're up to here. And, and so I think that's, uh, it's such important parts of the work that we do. And it's important just as human beings, my wife always jokes, you know, we'll pull into a gas station and I'll go in to, to get a pop or something. And she'll come back. And I said, well, what were you talking to the, the person at the, at the, at the checkout for? And I said, oh, you know, we got talking about, you know, this, that, or the other thing. And I think it's just, I don't know, it's part of human nature that it's fun to talk to people about stuff. And other people aren't maybe as comfortable doing that, but uh, I think just it's the fun part of being alive is just talking with folks. Yeah, I really like people as well, and I think they're fascinating. Yeah, you do it for a living here in your podcast. <laughs> Look at that. <laughs> you know, it, as you know, as you mentioned, the littlest thing can make somebody sign the signal. You are not welcome here. And I think it's also the case the the other way. The littlest thing by looking at somebody by saying hello, can I help you? Yeah. Or, hey, great to see you. Or how was your weekend? Those sorts of things that are very human, the human touch uh, can also signal that we're glad you're here. I'm glad you're here. Uh, yeah. My wife and I talk about this because, you know, we've lived most of our lives in the Midwest and now we are a little bit further South than we used to be. And, and not only are folks here in this region, very polite, but I have to say, if I'm walking across the quad on campus and I say hello to a student who's walking in the opposite direction or ask him how it's going, they'll stop and have a conversation with you, you know, and, and I, I find that real positive for our campus environment. I think, you know, we encourage that. Uh, it's one of the things that our, our university does. We talk about our size. We're not a giant university. You know, we have small class sizes and, and we, I like to tell parents when I meet them, we're really concerned about not having students fall through the cracks. But I think just in general, I think people like to have that interaction. Not everybody, and you know, you don't want to force it on on people who might be at more on the introverted end of the spectrum. But I do find that that people they do they do like to have an interaction with others. Yeah. So when you think about the bad bosses that you have had and this ten year leadership journey that you've been on, how have your experiences with those with those bosses informed? what you try to do and try not to do? I probably say at a personal level, one of the questions that you put in front of me was what used to bother you at work that doesn't bother you anymore. And I don't feel as if I get drawn into the, you know, that emotional uh, uh, stuff anymore. 
I don't really care for the personal drama that some people want to bring to the workplace. And you can do some things, you know, about that, which are, you know, let's make sure we have good position descriptions. Let's do good planning processes. Let's define work priorities and goals. And, you know, we can always focus on what we said we were going to do and how we're progressing and those kinds of things. And, and institutions like these always have evaluative processes that let's touch base on those. So that's, those are easy ways to help to kind of keep things focused on the work and not on the emotional interactions. Um, I would say, you know, some of the best advice I've had are from people who say things such as, uh, don't worry about the other guy, worry about yourself. And I think we spend a lot of time in large groups watching other people's performance and then complaining about it. That person has it better than me, or they're not working as hard as I am. And usually my answer is let's, you know, we're not here to talk about them. We're here to talk about what we're working on the two of us. And I had a, I had a bad boss. Uh, sometimes bad bosses have good elements too. Uh, but one of the things that they said is that, you know, we're not going to put our energy uh, into the naysayers and the obstructive people. We're just going to, we're going to let them put them aside, you know, and they can, they can do the thing that they're doing, but we're not going to expend a lot of energy on them. Let's find the people who are creative, who are innovative, who understand what we're trying to do and let's put our energy into them and let's find support for them and let's move the institution forward in the ways that we can with those folks. And, you know, it can be, it can be hard. Sometimes you have people who are, who are a three, you know, they're fully meeting expectations and they contribute greatly to the work. Um, but then you always get those people who work at 120%. And the challenge can be not expecting everybody else to work at 120%, but you know, put your energy behind those folks. Um, I would say some of the challenging environments that I've had have been some of those really caustic bad actors, both employees that have reported to me, sometimes peers, and a few bosses. And I would also say that I, I probably had more challenges working in unionized environments uh, where that formal uh, uh, work relationship through a, a, a contract uh, can very often define how you interact with each other certainly management to, to individual employees or work groups. And so those, those tend, to, tend to be more challenging and you can't ignore them. Uh, they are part of that work life. Um, so I, I would say if there's positive things, the things that I, I think I've taken from some of my good bosses have been helping to mentor people and helping to develop them. Um, I really enjoy when I get an email from someone I had one last week, hey, I'm applying for this job you know, can I put you on my reference list and, and being able to, to say to them, yes, I could do that. And then actually getting the call from someone and being able to talk to them. Um, it's also a challenge when someone you don't want to give a reference to <laughs> sends you that message. I had actually two, uh, it's about a month ago, two of them, I think who may have been in this, in the, the running for the same job. This is out of a previous state. And the one of them sent me an email and said, hey, can I put you on my reference sheet? I'm applying for this job. And I wrote back and I said, yeah, give me your resume and the job posting and let's talk about what's going what's to happen there. The other one, I just got the automated reference request. And it wasn't a person that I was likely to give a reference to. And so I just deleted the email. And um, I, I think going back to the good thing, I think it's not a bad thing for us as, as managers or leaders to help someone mature to the point that they leave the organization. Yes. You know, uh, I want them to grow and stay within my organization, but sometimes people don't have those, they don't have those ladders within an institution. Uh, one of our very good employees when I arrived here 
at UT Martin, you know, I knew that she was going to leave for another job. She just has a huge, beautiful career ahead of her. And so for the time that, that she was here, what, what could I do to support that work? What leadership opportunities could I give her? What sort of, you know, professional development support could we give? And, and so I, I think for me, reflecting on some of the things that I've done, it's, it's watching those people who've been successful, the people that we do put support on. And I think I'm better now at, 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 marginalizing or forgetting the the bad actors who seem to always want to be in your face about what's wrong with what you're doing and what the organization's doing and and people who very often just aren't contributing much to the to the organization and you just have to kind of learn to to balance where you where you put your effort yeah absolutely balancing our effort uh so that they don't they're not a time suck right and so that yes. we and for end up end up forgetting the people who are doing their job and doing it well and then the people who are the high performers so we've all worked with people that are difficult for us what sort of strategies have you employed that helped you um be with you know be around that person what what ha- what strategies have you used that worked and have there been some strategies you employed that didn't work so well well, I learned some hard lessons um, just in a few things. I think when you get those really caustic people, you have to become more formalized in your relationships with them. And it's sad that that happens, but there are certain, there have been certain people that I've worked with who I won't meet one-on-one in a closed room with. Mm-hmm. If we're going to have a meeting, there's going to be a third party there just because these are individuals who will either misunderstand conversation or they will purposely misrepresent conversation. And you get to a point in certain relationships where that's the case. Um, I would say at the other end of it, you know, I think you you have to sometimes just take a break from people, Um, particularly if you're in a meeting where things maybe get a little bit provocative or confrontational, you know, take a breath. Uh, It's very easy for emotion to take over any meeting and people to be reactive and I, I don't think it's a bad thing to say, you know what, I think, I think we should take a little break here. Uh, let's reschedule this meeting and, you know, and then maybe follow up with an email that says, gee, gee, you know, I think we have some issues here and here's what I think is going on. Email is a dangerous thing, but at the same time, before that next meeting, I think you, you need to have the ability to say to folks, here's where we have some, some communication issues or, or some problems, and we need to be able to talk about these openly at this next meeting. And, I, and I'm going to invite this other person to come. You know, maybe it's going to be my supervisor. Maybe it's going to be a representative from HR. Maybe we'll call Mary Brown and have her sit down with us. Um, But I think, you know, trying to resolve those issues. And I've had people who say, no, I won't take that meeting. You know, and, uh, you know, there are, sadly, there are, every institution has systems for progressive discipline uh, and for those kinds of things. And sadly, sometimes we have to pursue those. Um, But again, I, I don't like to think about those things that those are the primary parts of my job. Um, I learned uh, to use mindfulness and some short meditation tools. Uh, Those have helped me a great deal, even in the middle of the day, pull out a smartphone and run a short meditation on calm or insight timer, you know, just to kind of step away from, from maybe what's going on. My wife taught me a, a valuable tool years ago. She calls it her happy file. And that's when you get an email where someone says, hey, you did a good job. You know, it was really great the way you did this. Oh, I'm so glad that you're involved in this. Or you get a, a commendation letter of some some sort. 
start a file and put that in your drawer so that when you have that bad day where you think that everybody's against you and you're the crappiest leader in the whole world, at least you can pull out your little happy file and say, well, at least at one point, three years ago, somebody thought I was doing a good job. And maybe that will bolster uh, your ego a little bit on those bad days. But uh, I think just trying to be present is so important. Yeah. And uh, it's very easy when we have busy lives just to come in and focus on the to-do list that you've got and uh, forget that, you know, like Fezziwig, it's, you know, this, is, this is not a prison. The library that I work in is not an emergency room. If somebody doesn't get the answer they need today, they're not going to bleed out and die on the steps. Uh, but at the same time, we want to try and we want to try to keep moving the ball forward and have an impact uh, positively on on the university and the students that we serve. So I think that balance, you know, I'm, I'm a real believer in, in social committees, fun committees. Uh, we have a very good one where I work now and we try to have at least a monthly event, some of some sort. And I love making soup. So I'll often just bring in a couple of pots of soup and people don't even have to potluck around it. Just come and have a free bowl of soup, no hoopla. There's no table decorations, no centerpieces. Uh, just take a break from work. And, and maybe if you sit down with someone that you don't see every day and just ask them how Christmas was or, you know, what their hobbies are, when you do have a point of conflict three months from now, you're not coming at that person as a stranger. Yeah. You know, you have some, some at least baseline that, that you can do. And, and so I, I think those kinds of things are equally important to remind people that, you know, we, we spend more time sometimes with the folks we work with than our own families mm -hmm. and uh you know it does become a work family and you have to figure out how those how those relationships are going to work for you to maintain your sanity from day yeah. to day i like what you said about taking a break um during a meeting when it when it feels like maybe it's getting too emotional or going off the rails when i also like what you said when you have a person that trust is broken and you feel like you can't meet with them privately anymore, that you need to have somebody else there. Both of those, it sounds like taking a break, but what I hear is engagement. How do I continue this relationship? How do I continue the work with someone that I no longer trust? I continue the work and I actually still respect that person by having somebody else come in to help us communicate give us both a sense of safety and move forward. How do I deescalate a meeting? It's not by saying, okay, we're not meeting anymore. It's by taking a break, giving everybody uh, a, a chance to reflect and then coming back to it. And so much of uh, moving forward is realizing we're going to have conflict. And sometimes a part of actually moving forward is taking that break, taking that pause being able to be reflective, giving people that chance to breathe. And that is, that's normal. You're going to get more done. You're going to have a better team if you can allow for that space. But, you know, people don't like quiet. They don't like a deviation from the norm. And yet it is in that quiet, in that chance to take a breath. The other day I was having a bad day and I went to lunch with a couple of my boys and I said, after lunch, I'm going home and taking a nap. And someone said, oh, so mom, you're just going to sleep your problems away. And I said, yes, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And I took a break. I played on my boat, took a nap, and I started to feel better. And I feel better today because I've started to learn that what 
whatever those feelings of anxiety or it didn't go the way I wanted it to go that I don't want it. It's not escaping it because the only way through your problems is through them, but, but giving myself a chance to breathe and just to um, work through it in a calmer setting, I can again, gain that insight of that wasn't my best presentation. <laughs> That's life. I think, Somebody should do research on napping for leaders. I bet you it's out there. Somebody's sure. done everything. I mean, the you know, it's the Spanish have their siesta. That's right. You know, and uh, uh, I'm a power napper. I'm good at napping when I need to. Not in the office, although I have a couch in my office. But, um, you know, I, I I do think that that we have to kind of find that balance between, you know, what is the three of fully meeting the expectations either of your own job, but of your unit or the university. Yeah. But what happens when we, when we do encourage us to go to four or five, you know, what happens for all of us, mm-hmm. not just the institution and those we serve, but what does it mean for us as individuals? And, you know, that shouldn't be that being a three is a bad thing, uh, but how do we all kind of help the organization to kind of propel beyond that it's it's interesting for me i've always been someone who's enjoyed planning activities and i think i should have probably gotten stock in 3m i use a lot of post-it notes when we do planning but i think it's also not only that is the planning part important but the the checking in and the celebrating you know accomplishments and milestones i think is equally important we just we do a, a kickoff breakfast each semester uh, where we kind of rally the troops to what are we going to work on? But I always like to try to talk also about okay, what did we do during the fall semester? And boy, we did a lot of stuff during the small the fall semester, and going down that list and calling out people that worked on projects, and then talking about okay, here's the things I asked you. What do you want to do this semester? Here's all the things that people attach their names to, and we won't do them all, but at least having the sense that in addition to opening the doors and checking out books and updating electronic resources and doing an instruction session or interacting with someone in the, in the building, we're also going to work on this project. Mm-hmm. You know, we're going to try to see if we can buy a golf cart that has a box on the back and have it painted by students to be a, a library bookmobile. And we're going to drive it onto campus and do engagement events and, you know, we're going to get some sponsors to pay for it. And there's a lot of moving pieces to a project like that. But we never would have thought about doing that if we hadn't had a session where somebody said, well, we really need a, one of those golf carts, right. you know, and they say it a pie in the sky. And it's like, well, you know what, we can probably get a golf cart, you know, let's yeah. get it. Let's get a group to look at that. And, and suddenly people are excited about something that we never thought we could do. And we're breaking it down to pieces and we're working on it. And yeah, maybe I'll come back on your show a year from now and we'll talk about the library bookmobile <laughs> and uh, you know, that maybe that'll be a project that's done. Yeah. You know, maybe it won't, but uh, if you don't kind of have those kind of goal setting activities, I think you can just kind of fall into the monotony of coming into work every day and doing what's in front of you. And a friend of mine who worked in, in Silicon Valley said that when they did planning, they always had a little whiteboard off to the side uh, that had a big letters across the top KTBR. And he said, keep the business running. He said, you know, 90% of your capacity is about keeping the business running. And there's a whole bunch of stuff that goes on this tiny little board. That's just 90% of our work. We're going to do all this project planning and ideation and all this stuff, but still it's only going to have about 10% of our capacity to do it. Uh, 
I get that, you know, we all get that. But if you don't kind of talk about things that you should be doing, you're never going to do any of them. So yeah, I think it's always, I'm, I'm, I, I like planning. I'm probably not the best person to follow through on planning, but at least uh, talking about things we might do is kind of fun. Yeah. You know, I understand. I mean, I'm a huge proponent of clear job descriptions where everybody knows exactly what they're supposed to be doing and there's no mystery to it. I think that's vitally important. I'm not a big fan of assigning numbers to people. I find it artificial. This person's a three, this person's a five. We can't all be fives because if we're all fives, that's really a three. And I think that's really deflating. But if we want people to excel, it's everything that you've said. It's all the stuff in between. It's the day-to-day, it's the uh, initiatives and the dreaming and the planning and the camaraderie and um, coming into work and and having it be a good environment where we get our 90% done, but then we're also encouraged to dream and, and to be creative because we are active, right? The good life is the active life. And that's being able to engage and affect change. And so, well, I do understand the numbers and I personally would get, if I had my way, I would do away with the yearly evaluation because I feel like that is antithetical to what we know about positive psychology and how you actually treat human persons, adult human persons to thrive. Um, People get really worked up about those. We're going to come into our staff evaluations now in February, March, our faculty do their evaluations at the end of the summer coming into the fall semester. And, and there's a lot of anxiety about that. And, and, you know, it's hard to diffuse that even as a leader, Mm -hmm. you know, Uh, and there's a lot of anxiety sometimes about goal setting and, and again, some of it comes from bad bosses that people have worked for mm-hmm. who use those activities as opportunities to trap people yeah. and use punitive measures to say, well, you didn't do what you said you were going to do. So I'm only going to give you a 2.5 or whatever. <laughs> and, you know, I, I don't know. I, I, it's it, looking back on it, although I've had some of these caustic bad actors that have reported to me, I think most people turn up, you know, and work. And so I don't, I don't think it's a matter of having a bunch of people that are twos or ones that you got to use progressive discipline for, (laughs) you know, sometimes it's, it's people just want to come in and do their work and they want to go home. Mm -hmm. And that, that, that's, that's, that's great. You're contributing. Uh, You know, and we have, we have people of all different statuses and classifications from deans to faculty members, to staff, to student assistants. And, and yet, for the organization to work, each one of those people contributes and they contribute in different ways. And sadly, we compensate some of them pretty poorly, um, but we don't expect them to do the same things that we may expect of people further up those ranges. That doesn't mean that the student who's working 10 hours a week, maybe shelving books is less important to our enterprise, you know, than the Dean who's trying to, you know, write a grant to, to fund a program that we wouldn't otherwise do. It just means that the hours that we put in are are all significant to what we're you know what we're trying to accomplish, and yeah, you know you can sit in your office and look across the hall at somebody else, and think they're not doing their work, um, but when you know, just focus on what you're what you're what you're yeah. contributing, and let's talk about that. You know, yes, absolutely. Uh, so uh, to end our time together, when you think about the future of work, what would you like to have happen so that people can have? Um, flourishing, healthy work environments? Well, I I don't have answers, but I know a significant challenge we're going to face in work is going to be uh, the issue of remote work and hybrid work, and it'd be worthy of a whole nother conversation. And it's something that's starting to impact higher education and not just out of COVID, uh, but it's, it's, it's coming out of a lot of different things. 
so I think there's a real challenge there. I'm, I'm still very much a proponent of people working together. <laughs> and that, again, would be worthy of a whole nother conversation. Uh, but I think there's a there's a big challenge there in the future as to how how do we support people who don't necessarily come together physically? Um, and so I think we're going to have to deal with that as we go. Um, I think in higher education, as I said, we've got challenges ahead where we're going to need to support people who haven't traditionally attended college uh, and figuring out, okay, how, what do they bring to the table positively that we can harness as energy, certainly, but also how, how do we pivot our, our attitudes and our approaches to support them uh, so that if they want to get a college degree, they can. Mm-hmm. And I think even from that side, to flip my first comment, I think dealing with, in higher education, dealing with remote learners has always been an issue, but it's going gonna, it's gonna to continue to be a challenge mm-hmm. uh, as we go forward. Um, I think just an observation on my point, my part is that I think, at least in the places I've worked, we're seeing more, more adults that are coming out of a, a background where they were somewhere on a spectrum a cognitive spectrum. And, uh, and I think they're, they're, people are coming into the workforce that have lots of other challenge um, that I think we as leaders and managers need to figure out, okay, how, what can we accommodate? What should we accommodate? And there's a lot of bad managers who will just say, no, I can't, I can't hire that person. They won't complete the job. Uh, but I think some of the pieces in those tend to be in addition to completing the job, like you said, a job description that has specific activities, what are our expectations for individuals in a work group? Yeah. What are our expectations for them in joining uh, a group of people that are trying to accomplish things as a group? And I think all of those things are going to be interesting challenges for, for leaders to deal with in the, in the coming decades. And uh, I would like to think that we can find positive ways to engage everybody in each of these levels. Uh, but some of our traditional mindsets and individuals in jobs are going to be kind of hard, hard to break or to work with. So it's an interesting time. Yes. Lots of challenges and opportunities. Eric, thank you so much for being on Conflict Managed today. Oh, thank you so much. It's a great program. And I, I listen to it regularly. Wonderful. Thank you. Well, take care. All right. Thank you, Eric, for sharing your time with us. I really enjoyed our conversation. If you are a fan of TikTok, I'm on TikTok talking about conflict restoration at work. You can find me at 3P Conflict Restoration on TikTok. If there's someone you would like to see interviewed or questions you have, reach out to us at 3P Conflict Restoration at gmail.com. Conflict Managed is produced by Third-Party Workplace Conflict Restoration Services and hosted by me, Mary Brown. Our music is courtesy of Dove Pilot. And remember, conflict is normal and to be expected. Let's deal with it. Until next time, take care.